Okay, here we go. And our interview with Bob Babbitt comes down in three, two, one. So, Bob, first of all, growing up in Chicago, uh, 1960s, 1970s, any early sporting heroes that you really idolized or uh, used as role models? You know, I was, a, I was a big baseball fan. And back then, obviously, we could go to Cubs games and take the L and we'd go down to the games on the train, which was really fun. I loved uh, you know, Ernie Banks, Billy Williams, all, all the guys from, from my era, but I was, actually I was more of a St. Louis Cardinal fan because I could listen to those games at night on my, my little transistor radio under my pillow and listen to Jack Buck and Harry Carey, the early announcers. I just loved the energy they brought to the game. So those guys were sort of more my heroes than the players themselves. I just loved listening to the banter and how they... How do you fill you know, two and a half, three hours of dead air with you know, just watching a guy who's standing, scratching, <laughs> adjusting his hands on the bat? I mean, I, I thought that was a real art. That, that impressed me early on. Okay. Um, you asked this question to a lot of people. Um, early high school sports, were you one of those crazy steeplechase people that you uh, respect and admire so much? Actually, I was, I was the guy who was not really very good at anything sport-wise, but I was sort of the guy who organized everything. So, in my, and obviously this is before cell phones, which would have killed me back then. So, I would go to your house and say, hey, Jimmy, we're going to play, we're going to play baseball. And uh, he'd go, who else is playing? Well, I got Ronnie and Johnny and, and Dennis, and they're all coming. Well, of course, I hadn't talked to any of those guys yet. So, but once I got him to commit, then I'd go to the next door and say, hey, yeah, so, so that that was more my thing. I was the guy who organized all the games, and we played baseball and football and basketball. Just rotated with the seasons. In terms of high school sports, yeah, I was pretty crappy. I, I was really small. I was like four foot eleven, ninety eight pounds. So wrestling was like the one thing I could do, but I wasn't very good at it. So I was more the not sports in school, but the guy who was organizing the sports and playing the sports at home. Any brothers or sisters who kind of pushed you into sports or held you away from it? Any parents' influence? You know what? My, my, my brother was 10 years older. He was 10 years older than me. And really, he was already, by the time I was uh, you know, in my 6th, 7th, 8th grade, he was already off of college. Uh, my sister was four years older, was doing her thing. So I, you know, being the youngest... I sort of had full reign to do whatever the heck I wanted. <laughs> and so I was sort of, uh, by the time I was 15, 16, I was already coaching the kids in the neighborhood, the younger kids. and Baseball? Baseball, basketball, okay. all, all that type of stuff. So, yeah, and, and some of those kids I coached back then are, are still close friends to this day. And you graduated from high school in Chicago? Uh, a place called New Trier, which was um, north. We were in the north shore, so I lived in Wilmette, went to school in, in uh, Winnetka. Actually, our high school was the school they used in the movie Risky Business. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so went to New Trier and graduated in 69, uh, then went to University of Illinois and graduated in 73, and had no idea what I was going to do for, uh, you know, for a living. I came back to, Chicago, back to outside of Chicago and worked. Uh, with resident at a residential treatment center with emotionally disturbed kids for oh, wow. years. My job was a mainstream kids into Boy Scouts and, and Little League and things like that. The kids, I mean, we had this gamut of kids that you know, I had one kid who had shotgunned his brother to death. Yeah, I had another kid who had thrown a bike off a, 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 a roof of a building and killed somebody. And it was it was. Uh, 
very much of a burnout type of job because we had you basically had a prison cell in each each of these cottages. It was, these were the hard. It's almost like when they built Alcatraz mm -hmm. because we're the hardcore of the hardcore. Well, this was kids who didn't make it in foster care, didn't make it um, in obviously their own home, and they were institutionalized. So this was. Uh, you know, this residential treatment center and the state had to pay at that time like $50 a day per kid to be in this residential treatment center so they would keep trying to put these kids in cheaper locations oh. in foster homes and it never worked so because these, these kids were had been abused the, the worst part about the system is a kid it's a child and here you've got a dad burning them with cigarettes when you've got a, a mom who's never home and the child's on their own and what happens the kid gets taken away and put away not their fault yeah the parents just, doesn't happen to them no they're still there yeah so the child always feels that they did something wrong yeah. home is the panacea even though home was what was awful you know those people their parents were awful for them. so yeah. from there uh after a couple of years there i decided my sister was teaching school in san diego oh, oh so your sister was here already my sister was oh, okay. here and I came and I actually interviewed at residential treatment centers and schools up and down the West Coast and uh, realized that uh, I, got, oh, I got a job offer in San Diego, a place called the Children's School, which was basically right near where our club meeting was last night. Oh, wow. Same little conference. <laughs> and decided that um, I was going to take a job as at a private school. And, you know, being from, uh, being from Chicago, they gave me a tour of the school. And I'm, I'm like, well, I'm going to run a P program here. Where's the gym? And they're like, there is no gym. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what are you doing? It rains. <laughs> well, we don't get that much rain. So I was there eight years. I think I was rained out one day a year. Wow. Basically for eight years. So it was, it was really eye-opening to me. And I just fell in love with the fact that you could be outside every day. And fell into running 5Ks and 10Ks. And I met this guy rock climbing in Mexico uh, named Ned Overend, who went on to become world mountain bike champion, yes. but mountain bikes hadn't been invented yet. So he was a mechanic at San Diego Suzuki, I was a school teacher, we lived down by the beach in Mission Beach, and we were doing these, you know, these running events. And one day we saw this thing on something called an Ironman Triathlon. Okay. This was 19, this is after the 1979 race, there was an article in Sports Illustrated. And the guy who won the race was a guy named Tom Warren, mm -hmm. who owned a Tugs. tavern, Tugs Tavern, in Pacific Beach. And Ned and I had done the Tugs swim, run, swim event. You swam a half mile, you ran five miles on the beach, and ran and swam another half mile. And the key to that event So was, you were already able to swim fairly yeah. decently at that time. Well, I mean, I was decent, but I could get through the water. Okay. So, but Ned and I were sort of falling into this stuff, and we were really liking it. And I didn't realize how good Ned was, right? And so one day we were running this 5K race, and we finished. And I said, yeah, Ned, I'm going to head back. I'm going to head back to the place. He goes, no, i got to hang out. I finished second. <laughs> you did what? <laughs> so he was this, he had this ability to process oxygen. His nickname became the lung because mm. he could go uphill better than anybody. But again, mountain bikes hadn't been invented at that point. So he was sort of searching for his way. He mm. was... I kid people now, I've got these photos of him. He was selling these amphibious vehicles called scramblers for duck hunters. <laughs> duck hunters would take these things out in the barn, mm -hmm. out in the, out the woods, yeah. and they would break down, and they'd call Ned to come mm -hmm. fix the tracks on these <laughs> things out in the middle of nowhere. It was, uh, it was pretty crazy times. But anyway, so 
this tug swim run swim, uh, Ned and I did this, and we posed for photos. You know, after after the uh, race, mm -hmm. you know, one of the early guys who took photos of you at the races. Well, the guy turned out to be Mike Plant. Mike Plant. Mike yeah. Plant, who had started the San Diego Track Club News newspaper that became Running News and became eventually Running and Triathlon News. So this is around, I would this imagine, 74? Okay. It was before 80. Okay. We, we, so after Ned and I did Tugs and then after the article came out in Sports Illustrated on Tommy, um, we wanted to find out about this Iron Man. Mm -hmm. We had no idea. So we, nobody did. <laughs> nobody did. So it's not like you can call anybody up. It really wasn't anybody listed as a race director. So we went and I tracked down Tommy and I said, Tommy, can you explain this Iron Man thing? And I said, sure, Babbitt, come to my office. I'm like, well, where's your office? He said, well, it's on, the, it's on the west side of the street, just south of the Crystal Pier of mm -hmm. Pacific Beach. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Well, then I get down there. Oh, the office, yeah. There's no buildings. Uh -huh. There's a motorhome. With, uh, with running shoes tied around the side view mirror, a bike on the back, and a paddleboard on top, and I'm figuring this is probably it. So I put my head inside, and like, Tommy's like, Rabbit, welcome to my office. I'm like, he had a roll of dimes, and there was a payphone behind where he was at, so he would make his business calls, and wow. beer, and tortillas, whatever else. And he'd run five miles each morning. He'd run along the, the boardwalk there, Pacific Beach to Mission Beach and back. Then he'd swim out around the pier. Then he'd ride his bike to Oceanside. So he was an early triathlete yeah. who didn't know what the hell triathlon was. And then he went off and won the Ironman. It was an eight-page feature in Sports Illustrated. He was on the Johnny Carson show. Wow. Yeah, and when he was on the Johnny Carson show, which was the show back then, so Johnny says to him, remember, there was 15 people in the race and 12 finishers. And Tommy won. And so Johnny's like, so Tommy, what'd you win? And he hands him the early Iron Man trophy, which is a little... Was that something that, what was it, John Collins welded yes, up? John <laughs> made the, the, the original Iron Man trophy, which had a, like a, 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 a nut for a head, mm. which is a metal thing. And Johnny's like, this is what you want? And he turns it over and he goes, hey, Tommy, I hate to tell you this, but there's a screw loose on it. <laughs> and everybody started cracking up. It was pretty funny. So anyways, once, uh, you know, Tommy took us... To, to his, he took us to the bar that was right behind his motorhome and was talking about the sport of triathlon. And as he's talking, he's got a magic marker and he's making a mark on his arm every time he has a beer. And again, remember, this is guy who's going to tell us about this Iron Man thing. He's sort of our mentor. Yeah. So Tommy goes, I said, Tommy, sir, uh, what, what are you doing with that magic marker? And he goes, well, I have a little bit of drinking problem, so I make a mark on my arm, and when I get to my sleeve, I go home. <laughs> so then we go to his house, and he's got a bike mounted in a sauna. You know, like, sort of like Lionel Sanders now. Yes! But that's back then. Mm -hmm. You're like, you did what? So I ride five hours on my bike to train for Hawaii, and we're like, oh my God training in a sauna so then we got to go get bikes mm -hmm. so we go to a police auction my bike cost mm -hmm. 75 bucks the whole back end had been burnt in a fire and you were kind of scared of changing tires so you, you adapted solid though rubber. Solid, solid rubber, rubber tires and you wax them out so you didn't have to worry about changing tires yeah. and then i thought that you swam 2.4 Road 56 camped out and rode back the next day. Right, so logical. Logical, right? So I put Pannier sleeping bag and tent on the back of the bike, figuring that you're going to camp out. And so we found out that people were doing it in one day. Mm. 
sounds a little crazy. <laughs> but so Ned and I were training, and I, at that point I had a little condo in, in a place called Mission Valley here. So at the time yeah. you're working still as a teacher? teacher. Okay. Yeah, working as a school teacher. And um, Ned's working in San Diego Suzuki. And we get a local running store called uh, The Sports Page. Gives us a pair of shoes, so they were our first sponsor. Adidas? Uh, Adidas, mm. exactly. Yep. Uh, marathon trainers. So Ned and I were, we, we, because we were rock climbers, the only helmets we had were rock climbing helmets that have no holes in them. <laughs> so we'd go for these rides, and it would be, we'd ride and we'd go, oh my God, our heads are going to explode. There's no way you can do this this whole thing in, in, in one day. And then we, that's what really got me with the sleeping bag and panniers and yeah. And then the other thing we realized that with the, with the um, when you go for a long, long ride, it's like, oh, your butt hurts, your, all mm-hmm. this stuff. We thought if we average 10 miles an hour, yeah. Like 112 miles. You know, we're we're going to be out there a long time. Yeah. So we're going to need headlamps oh. or we're going to need to camp out. This, this is adventure racing. We didn't know. <laughs> yeah. We had no idea. So, and then I had a, you know, I, I bungee corded a radio to the front of the handlebars. Now, was that just for aesthetics? No. I no. I tunes. <laughs> I, I actually caught that, that day. I caught a, uh, they are playing a Rolling Stones concert huh. from, from Maui. It was on my, so... so because of the articles post-surgery, the event had grown from 15 participants to 108. Boom, right? And you, you still had support crews back then, and I was a school teacher, like I said. So one of the kids I thought her dad lived over in Oahu. Oh, wow. So he and his two girlfriends brought their Fiat convertible, and they were going to be my crew. And what do you eat? What do you drink? No idea. So I had... You know, just loaves of Hawaiian sweet bread. Was that something you had tried before in training, or it we tasted? We didn't really train that much. Yeah, so we just would ride around. And, no, we just figured that we figured out on race day. Yeah. Again, it's an adventure. Right? Mm. We really didn't know what the heck we were doing. So I gave that to my uh, my crew. Just gave them, gave them that stuff. And so on uh, the, the day before the race, we had a meeting at this hotel, the, and everybody was there, and Hank, the race director, gets up and goes, hey everybody, I've got a, a wonderful opportunity for the event. ABC is on the island here, uh-huh. and they're filming cliff diving on Sunday, but they've got their crew, and they can cover us tomorrow. Because it's held on Saturday. In a lot of places, the Ironman is a, is a Sunday race, right. but forever, it's uh, Kona's always on the yeah. Saturday. Yeah. And again, this is Oahu, before we moved to Kona. So... He goes, uh, if we, you know, if the race is tomorrow as planned, I'll be able to get on Wide World of Sports, which would be huge for the event. But the problem is, the year before, they had to postpone the event a day because of the storms. Mm-hmm. Well, as we're standing there, the waves are breaking against the building, like 10 feet high. Mm-hmm. And Ned and I are looking out at the surf zone, we're going to die. And while you're doing that, Dave Scott is out there, somewhere, getting lost. Dave was out there for a couple of hours, <laughs> and the person he was swimming with got washed down the yeah. beach. So anyways, the race director goes, We're, I'm going to move the swim, the Alamoana Channel, rather than the Waikiki Roughwater Swim, because I can't afford to miss this ABC opportunity. And of course, all the Navy SEALs, who were the early participants uh-huh. of Dave Scott, were like, oh, what a wussy event, I can't believe this swim. While Ned and I were like, I'm going to live. Because we did all of our swimming in a 120 length of a mile pool in Mission Valley. 
that was, you know, you, you get dizzy just doing all the turns. Wow. So we knew we would die on that. So there's no way. So anyways, on race day. No wet, well, obviously no. Uh, Hawaii's not a wetsuit to him anyway, but. Yeah, we didn't have to worry about that. But So anyways, I was worried about swimming. Anyways, uh, so on race day, when, we're, when they start the race, um, we get in the water, and I'm swimming, and I'm staying as close to shore as possible, right? And it's a four length, down, back, down, back, and okay. down the water channel. And on my way back, I almost run into this guy, uh, this guy, John Huckabee, known as the Incredible Huck. Huck's background was he'd run the Athens Marathon back to back to back in one day. He was an amazing runner. He was 59 years old, which wow. was really old for somebody doing this type of stuff back then. He was known as the Incredible Huck. He was one of the few yeah. guys who had sponsors. And, but meanwhile, I'm swimming back, and I almost run into his knees. He's walking Whoa. the entire swim. And he's the only guy oh. in history of the Iron blisters <laughs> on his feet during the swim. During the swim. So he's walking the whole way. He's doing, moving his arms yeah. back and forth. So we get out of the water, and I, they didn't have right, the showers, which is what was in the park. So there was a guy and his kid who were in the showers. I waited you know, while these guys finished up. Mm-hmm. And my crew got me in my gear, and you know, I'm wearing my, I had khaki shorts. With, with a belt. belt. <laughs> regular leather belt. Yeah. And I had a, a long sleeve shirt. I had a pocket sewn in the back for my Hawaiian bread. <laughs> I was number three because I set my $25 wow. in third. $25. $25 Then... Um, no helmet, Radio Shack radio, fuzzy raccoon seat cover, uh, foam grips on the on the handlebars. I mean, and and how did that do in the wind tunnel? Uh, it was really, really good in the wind tunnel. <laughs> so then we get out, and I'm riding along, and about 25 miles into the race, and I see my crew on the side of the road. And I'm listening to my radio. I'm so excited to be out of the water. And... 25 miles, Big Mac fries in a cup. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Best Which ever. Big, oh, <laughs> Big Mac I've ever had. Then at mile 80, I rip your snow cone. And meanwhile, Ned, his girlfriend, was screwing for him. Mm-hmm. And she lost him as soon as he left transition. She found him about 80 miles into the ride drinking from a sprinkler on the side <laughs> of the road. So then we finished the, finished the bike. And as I'm coming in, I hear this music. And I come in, and there's my crew. Mm-hmm. And they've got a bamboo mat laid out. And they're like, about a massage. Oh, yeah. Oh, that would feel great. My mm-hmm. neck is really tight. So about a 45-minute massage <laughs> between the bike and the rug. And they had a rule back then. If you lost 5% of your body weight, uh-huh. they would pull you out of the race. So they had scales. You had to get off your bike a couple times, and then during the run, they'd weigh you. And they'd check this, make sure you had lost you hadn't gained too, lost too much weight yeah. because dehydration, you're not safe to go on the run. Exactly. I don't know where they came up with the science, but <laughs> So we start the run, I get weighed, and about mile four, now I'm eating Hawaiian sweet bread, and I'm staggering along <laughs> and drinking Gatorade and got my little distended belly, and I get on the scale mile four, and I can remember that I'm a walkie-talkie. I remember, <laughs> ah, can you give me that again? You gain four pounds. You can't gain weight doing this. <laughs> So despite the fact you're sweating and it's a hot day and you're putting out some calories, obviously you're, you're gaining a few pounds. I'm gaining a few pounds. Uh-huh. Then I get to Diamond Head. And now I'm thinking, because remember I wasn't planning to do this since one day. And I thought this would take me two days. So now I'm running up Diamond Head. My crew's behind me with a little Fiat convertible, like lighting up the way. And I'm actually running up Diamond Head and then we'll drop in the Kapilani Park. And I'm so what time of day would this be about? This is, I think I finished... In, like 14 something so we started at 7 in the morning and, uh, what 
whatever that is, like 10 at night. Or okay, plenty night. dark. Yeah, plenty dark. So, I, uh, as I'm coming down into it, I'm thinking about, God, there's going to be cheerleaders, there's going to be bands. Yeah. This, is pretty, this is a pretty cool accomplishment. Yeah, 115 place. people finishing it. So. Yeah, 108 cheerleaders, we like it. 115, yeah. yeah. So, anyways, as I'm coming into Capilano Park, I see a white line on the road, and I see a light bulb overhead. And I'm sort of slow down, and I hear this guy in the darkness yell, Hey, you! <laughs> You in the race? Yeah. You're done. You're done. That was it. That was like it. One guy doing one arm push ups in the park. And it was, it was like nobody there. But it just. No Mike Rally, no Steve King. Nobody. A light bulb. So it just made me, as I walked away, I just felt like I was changed. Right? I knew that now I had this business card that told me that I could accomplish things that I didn't think I could do. Right? Because I had just finished this 140.6 mile thing that I thought would take me two days. And I finished it one day. And it was just, it was cathartic. It was something, and I, I think... That has never changed. I think that still to this day, for the average person who doesn't know how, you know, what they what they can do, right? You can do all the training you want. The one thing that connects the age grouper and the top pro when they go to the starting line that Ironman race, they don't know if they're going to see the finish line. Right? You don't know. No, things happen. Out there. And that unknown is, I think, what bonds all of us together. Is that there's that's sort of scary. That you could have done the best preparation in the world. And it doesn't matter. I remember one year Scott Tinley won Ironman New Zealand and like barged through the finish shoot. Just, I need a I need a pen, I need a piece of paper. And he wrote down everything he did. Because uh-huh. he had the perfect day. The formula. The formula. What he ate, what yeah. he ate. And next time he raced, did the same thing and blew up. Yeah. So you just that's what's so bizarre about yeah. this thing is you just it's the unknown. It's this journey into the unknown. And to me, I knew right then this is what I, I wanted to be involved with this forever. And that led to me leaving teaching and going to work for Mike Plants at what was then Running News. And I had convinced him to change it to Running and Triathlon News. Because uh, based on the sport with 100 people doing it, this is going to be a huge sport. Absolutely. Gigantic. So Running and Triathlon News. And then uh, Mike left the company. And I became the editor of Running a Triathlon News, and then in April of 87, they closed the magazine out, right? And the guy had bought the publication and basically collected all the money that was owed and closed the doors. So my, my the art teacher from the school, Laura Schwartz, and my, myself, the art teacher from the school had become our photographer and left teaching the same time I did to become a photographer running a Triathlon News. So, in, um, after running triathlon was closed, I went and met with two different uh, publishers of cycling magazines. One called California Bicyclist, one called Southern California Cycling. We're also free publications of running triathlon. I said, guys, if we did a magazine that combined running and triathlon and cycling, I think it could be very popular. Now, was this uh, a free publication? or was yeah, free publication. And I, I went to you know, both of them with the same pitch, and both of them were like, listen, we'll never put a skinny runner on the cover of the magazine. Triathlon's a fad. It'll be gone in five years. <laughs> and so I said... Non-believers. Non-believers. I came back to San Diego, and some of our advertisers and friends called most and I had a meeting and gave us a check for $17,000 and said, go start your own magazine. And we That's when it. Competitor was born. That was Competitor. So we were in... 
underneath 20,000 pounds of bike racks in a in a guy's garage, uh, 200 square feet. We pay $200 a month. Didn't pay ourselves for the first year and a half. What did you eat? I lived on friends' floors. Yeah. I lived off the savings. And but we had this. I mean, I didn't know that 95% of all magazines go out of business the first year. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. Yeah. We did what was in our heart, and we believed in endurance sports. And so every single weekend, Lois and I would drive to LA or drive to San Diego and cover running and triathlon and cycling events. And bit by bit, we grew it from one magazine to eleven, uh, around eleven editions. Different communities around America. Yeah. 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 The whole idea of regionality. We had to change perceptions. The perception was that a free magazine is a throwaway, it's a you know, penny saver, it's not worth anything, and I had it, somehow we needed to get national advertisers to believe in what we were doing. Yeah. So I could take my magazine and lay it down next to Runner's World or Outside Magazine, and it could look exactly the same. Same type of photography, same type of great editorial, but their mentality was, well, it's free, there's no value. So the way we changed that was to think about what else is free. In this country, what's free is, when you turn on television, ABC, CBS, and NBC are free. Do they have less value than ESPN because that's cable and subscription? Yeah. So Runner's World and Outside Magazine was subscription Yeah. They were 600,000 circulation. We had competitor were half a million circulation. We were free. So they serve more value because they're subscription. And some Boy Scouts going door to door selling subscriptions and you're doing it and you just check a box and you're getting a magazine you don't want. Yeah. Or somebody going into Jamba Juice to pick up my magazine and realize that, you know what, what's this thing called? the 5k you know we needed to grow our sport and you know to me the whole idea was from the very beginning i wanted more people to know about how great sports are and how they are cathartic how they change lives for the better and you don't need any special skills if you're a basketball player you got to be tall if you're a football player you got to be big and wide and fast if you're a triathlete if you head up if you wore arm floaties as a kid if you had a paper route and you play capture the flag, you've got our skill set. You don't need to have any skills, right? If you swim, bike, and run a little bit on a regular basis, you get good. You're going to get through it. You're going to get through it. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. And then when you get through it, you're going to realize what else you can do. Mm-hmm. And you become a better employer, a better employee, a better, uh, a better parent, a better spouse. Everything about you improves because of the success you have in endurance sports. And when I say success, it's just getting the finish line. Because early on, I made it a point, I handed out 3,000 copies of Competitor every single month. Personally. Personally. Because I wanted the feedback from my reader. Plus, I wanted that person in the early days, people would be like, competitor that no I'm not a competitor I'd be like what do you mean well that means elite athlete right what competitor is you're here at 5 in the morning to, to run a 5k or walk a 5k you're competing with yourself to make yourself better you're a competitor you are totally long targeting with this magazine oh I didn't maybe so that's that was an important thing that you did because there could be perspective you know changes differences and the other thing was the, the, the style of distribution back then was you we need to be in all the running stores and all the bike stores and my mentality was well, that's great to be in those places where you're predictable inquire but how 
often, you're a hardcore runner. What do you go to your running store four times a year? Right? You don't go every day. Yeah. You don't go every week. You go when you need a pair of shoes. So we're missing that person eight times a year. Eight issues a year, they don't see you. But so you come to a coffee day. shop every day. You go to Jamba Juice. Yeah. We have a place here called Rubio. And Ralph Rubio, we did a thing with Ralph where I had a rack in, in all his stores. And it was California's Fittest Food, California's Fittest Magazine. Uh -huh. And he was, he was launching a health max med menu. And the whole idea was to get people coming in going, you know, the average person, they're 20 pounds overweight. They're not hiring a personal trainer. Right? They're going, okay, you know what? I'm going to start by, instead of a Whopper for lunch, I'll have a smoothie. Or I'll have something from the health max menu. So they go in there. And then they see competitors, and then they see, what's this thing called the 5K? Once they put a number on it, we got them. Yeah. yeah. They're in our world. They're committed. They're committed, yeah. and they're, we know they're going to have a great experience. And that, that experience is life-altering. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to change their lives, and now they're part of our family. You saw the people last night. Absolutely, yeah. You can tell. So many first-timers, so much enthusiasm, um, not knowing what they're doing, and really loving that as well. I mean, they're on just like you were when you, you know, exactly. were getting ready. Uh, it's the start of this crazy journey. Well, and the important part is the inclusion aspect. Because what I've seen over time, if you look at the cycling world, right, a lot of times your cyclists, you go for a ride and you're a brand new guy, right? <laughs> you get a flat, nobody's waiting for you. Yeah. They're there, they're competing with you. They're not welcoming you. And early on with the Tri Club, we had a president by the name of Jim McCann, who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago. But what was great about Jim was he was very inclusionary. And I remember one of the club members was Triana Wetsuit. And he put his wetsuit on inside of her. <laughs> And it could have been one of those things where he comes out of the bathroom and everybody's pointing and laughing. And Jimmy just walks over quietly and puts his arm over his shoulder and says, there's another way to do that. Let me show you. <laughs> that, to me, summed up what triathlon has been about and what this club has been about. It's welcome. We want everybody to enjoy the same excitement of our sport that we have. We want them to understand that triathlon is about with you, right? It's, when you turn 50 years old as a runner, the odds are you're not going to be running faster than you ran at 40, right? If you've been running that long, absolutely. Right? Yeah. So when you get into triathlon, you find you can run less and you can run forever. So there's no reason you can't be doing the stuff when you're 70, 80, 90 years old. Yeah. And by going to events on the weekends, keeps you young because there's all sorts of young people. Yeah, and, and it's not just about the racing. I mean, the reason we have a triathlon club in Abbotsford and we do a lot of research and surveys, it's it's primarily the social aspect, doing what doing what you guys did last night, doing what we do once a month, you know, uh, coffee with the coaches. We have meetings with, you know, just... We have the series called Triathlon 101, so Perfect. so many people yep. don't know how to change their tires yet. So, we, we uh, for example, we went to a winery. Well, why not have it in a place where you can kind of kick back, bring your bike, you know, uh, and yeah, such a such an important part is the is the social aspect. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, think about it. You're, the reason you stay in this sport is because you go ride with your buddies, you run with your buddies, you swim in a master's program. The social aspect is everything. And a lot of times that becomes your social group. And the cool part for me is this is also a very selfish type of sport. You can get very immersed in just me, me, me and my times. But early on, we started the Challenge Athletes Foundation. And now we've raised over $80 million to be challenged athletes in the game of life through sport. And all that started because of triathlon, because of Ironman. 
and he gets yeah, because our buddy Jim McLaren was a 300-pound football player at Yale. And in 1985, he was on his motorcycle going to acting class in New York, got hit by a bus, thrown 90 feet in the air, had an arrival, lived, but lost his lower leg. Came back from that to go 316 for the marathon, and 10.42 in Kona, Wow! as a lower leg injury. So he was changing the perception of what somebody with a prosthetic leg could do. So that's when I started covering him through competitor, 88, 89, 90, and Jimmy was traveling the world. Right? And then, eight years after his first accident, he was racing in Mission Viejo here in Orange County. Uh -huh. A van went through a closed intersection, hit the back of his bike, and fell in the head first in the pole, and he became a quadriplegic. Oh my goodness. A guy who's here in amputee became a quadriplegic. So huh. the goal was, because I covered a lot of wheelchair athletes through a competitor, I'd hear from them, I'd ask them what's the worst part about becoming paralyzed. And over and over it was, I'm 30 years old, here come mom and dad back in my life. No sense of self, no sense of independence. So the goal was put on a little triathlon for Jimmy, buy him a van that he can drive with his hands, uh -huh. a hand-controlled van, and you know, raise 25K through this little triathlon at La Jolla Cove and get Jimmy a little independence. So that's what we did. Mm -hmm. We raised 49,000 and thought our job was over. Wow, 49, that's that's a heck of a start. So these three amputee women came up to us after the race and said, you know, Jimmy is the reason that we got into endurance sports because he was our hero. and. Did you know that your health insurance will cover a walking around leg or an everyday wheelchair, but anything to do with sports is considered a luxury item that's not covered. So that's when we decided that we are going to get our 5013C. So when you're saying we, who else is involved? Myself, uh -huh. Jeffrey Esikow, who had been working at the Tinley Company, and uh, Rick Kozlowski, who was a local race director. And the three of us started the foundation back in 94. Well, the first event was 94, uh, San Diego Triathlon Challenge. And then since then, you know, this last year, we sent down 2,089 grants, totaling $3.7 million. And we've, we've raised over $80 million. Over $80 million. And we have the, our own building here now. It's amazing. And when the athletes get this money, what are they primarily using Buying for? equipment for buying a uh, prosthetic leg. Okay. And we actually have sponsors. We have a sponsorship with Oser, which makes makes the legs. Oh, perfect. And the feet and everything. Uh -huh. yeah, so we provide for a lot of folks. It's buying them equipment for a lot of that's coaching for a lot of them it's travel expenses somebody wants to go to the Paralympics like this year one of the things we worked very hard on uh -huh. was getting triathlon into the Paralympics so the paratriathlon was in Rio for the first time wow. in 2016 so it was very cool so this year in Rio 44% of all the U.S. athletes were, had received grants from Syria okay. and 70% of all the medal winners that's making grants. a huge impact the best thing was um, this when I was in Rio, this woman comes up to me, Deborah Jackson, and she goes, Bob, you probably don't remember, but eight years ago, my son Desmond got a running leg from you guys. Tomorrow night, he's running the finals of the 200 meters. Whoa. He's 16 years old. He's the youngest Paralympian on the track team, and he's running the 200 finals tomorrow night. And it all started with CAF. Yeah. I love that. That's a and that all, you know, that's that's all because of triathlon. Mm -hmm. you know, triathlon, we think of it as a little sport. It's a little sport with a huge heart. Yeah. So Bob Babbitt going from competitor, striking out on his own for the Babbitt Media Group. Yeah. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about sure. that transition. Yeah. Uh, we had sold competitor in 2008 to a private equity firm. And uh, at the same time, had, uh, the private equity firm had bought all the Rock and Roll Marathons, had bought Triathlete Magazine, Velo News for cycling. 
and we had a, it was really a cool setup because you had a silo for events. So you had Rock and Roll Marathon, my Money Buddy series, which right. I created. You created that? Yeah, created Money Buddy, yep. It was the first national mud obstacle series back in 99. And we, you know, so uh, we had Money Buddy, we had Women's Running uh, Half Marathon series. Media-wise, we had Competitor, Women's Running Magazine, Velodiz Magazine, and Triathlon. And then, um, so during that, and then all new media. So between 2008 and 2012, private equity's job is to grow substantially. So we went from seven rock and rolls to 34. 800,000 participants, 65% women. Rock and roll sort of changed the whole demographics of sport. Uh, by, it used to be when, when I first started in the endurance sports, it was 80, 90% men and 10%, 20% women. Now, running is 60, 65% women. Yeah, you go to any local 10K, I mean, yep. it's changing. So then we sold again in 2012 to another private equity firm called Calera. And I stayed for another couple of years till August 2014, which just felt that closed my Money Buddy series. I had a thing I created called the Endurance Sports Awards, which is sort of the Academy Awards for Endurance Sports. That had gotten closed. And um, uh, Competitor had become a straight running magazine, which I thought was a mistake. So I just felt like, you know what? So much of who I am is gone. So I decided I love doing my radio. So just relaunched on the Babbittville radio. Babbittville, yes. Breakfast with Bob, mm-hmm. Kona, which now we'll be doing it from Boston, from Challenge Conficton, uh, and a number of other locations. Island House, where is it? Bahamas? Bahamas. Wow. What a gig. <laughs> it was really fun. Uh-huh. Really fun. So, anyways, it's, uh, it's been great. It's been a lot of fun, and obviously I still spend a lot of time with Challenge Athletes Foundation. We, we just did a, a Giving Tuesday where we interviewed some of our CAF athletes at the building. Um, I think we interviewed like 10 athletes on uh, two different Tuesdays, and you know, we ended up uh, one Tuesday we raised 50000 and another Tuesday I think we raised about ten or twelve. So it's been fun. Mm-hmm. It's been a good time. Work and fun. Um, usually you're on the other end of the microphone asking questions, and you've been doing this forever for competitor and even before that. Uh, I'm wondering... Um, do you have any any favorite people that you've liked to interview over the years? Sure. Obviously, yeah. we had Dean coming back, and yeah. it appeared you were having a heck of a time with him, as you always do. Um, Dean, any others? Oh, Dean is wonderful. You know, over the years, some of my favorites, uh, I mean, you know, before all the stuff went down, and I started covering Lance Armstrong when he was 15, and some of the interviews we had during the time he was, had been diagnosed with cancer, where he didn't know if he was going to live or die, uh, I just felt like he was sort of burying his soul. And they were those were pretty powerful. I still listen back to those, and it was one in particular that I'll never forget. Where I'm like Lance, you have 11 tumors in your belly, and we get through that. Then you find out you have lesions on your brain. I mean, how do you not give up? How do you? Because you know what? I knew it couldn't get any worse. I knew there had to be a light. If I was going to live, there was going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm like, wow, that, that's that's a different mindset than most of us would. Most of us would just give up. So those are the type of things that I look back on. I just interviewed this guy, Mike Coots, the other day, who lost his leg to a shark attack when he was 17. And he remembers looking down and the shark had both his legs in his mouth. And he used his fist and started hitting on the shark 
and the shark let go of what he thought let go of both legs uh -huh. and got him in his hand. So his hand was bleeding. Oh. And so he thought, oh my God, you know, my hand is bleeding. It's down to the bone. I got to get to the beach. And so as he's paddling, he feels this vibration in his in his leg and he uh -huh. looks back. He's thinking he's going to see the shark coming after him and sees that his leg had been severed. The wow. shark had bit it off mid-calf. And got to the beach. They got him to the hospital and wakes up the next morning after surgery and says the doctor and his mom are standing over him and the, and the doctor's like, do you want to tell him or should I? And he's like, oh my God, what are they going to tell me? And his mom goes, honey, I need to tell you that you've lost your leg. And he goes, I know that. I saw that. Anything else? He says, you know, no, you're good. Awesome. So he goes, if you told me today that if I paddled out and the same thing would happen, I would do it. Uh, my life is better wow. now. I've traveled the world. Yeah. I, he, he actually became an advocate to protect sharks wow. against long-line fishing. It's some of those stories where you sort of don't know where they're going, mm -hmm. those are my favorite. When, you know, Lionel Sanders. Yeah. What Lionel's overcome from, from the, and the thing that sticks out to me with Lionel, for a guy who is dealing with drug addiction, the fact that his parents continue to stand by him. From, from his first Ironman, where was that? In Kentucky. Louisville. Yeah. And they, you know, at that point he had failed, he had, he had kept, he spent all the money that they put aside for college. Yeah. And he was he, he was circling the drain, and then he goes out of nowhere. I want to go do Ironman Louisville, and they not only pay for his entry, they not only drive him there. They, they they're there buying him an outfit to wear. He knows nothing. Day of race, day of race, right? And. He finishes that thing and it changes his life and now he's the fastest Ironman in history. Watching that and just watching how that young man has changed his life for the better and thinking to his parents who never gave up. Yeah, right? That to me is the story. And he said, I said, so do you get calls from other people who are in your position? And he goes, not really. No. He says, because it's... I, the people, I, you know, he says, what I get calls from is people like my parents, uh, who are like, how do I change him? How do, the problem is you can't, says, until I made the decision, yeah. nothing was going to happen. Mm. I was going to be the best partier in the world, and that's all that mattered. That was the goal. That was the goal. Mm. So those type of leaders, Will Farrell being on the show was hilarious, and we, we interviewed him when he, his only movies were he had done maybe Zoolander, and uh, Night at the Roxbury, and oh, then he'd been in Austin Powers, right? Where he, he did was, some bit part there. He did. Yeah, it, it was. He played. He, he played the guy who uh, they, they uh, Doctor Evil flushes him downstairs, right? And he's like, oh, Bradley Burns, not dead yet. Oh, now I've been shot. Mustafa. 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 So Huddle and I, my former co-host, yeah. Huddle and I would, were giving him crap about, you know, you should have gotten a cameo work from Mustafa. Yeah. That was an amazing role. He says, you know, you guys, uh, you guys are going to be sorry. My next movie, uh, we haven't named it yet. We think we're going to call it Old School. Uh -huh. But that, that movie's I think that's going to be a good movie. And so then he went, Old School, Elf. Talladega Nights, right? Yeah, you know, man. Yeah. I was like, okay, drop the mic. Mm -hmm. But he, he still came out the show after. Yeah. Yeah. Now those are some of the successes. Can you think back a time where uh, interview went wrong, or you just weren't clicking, or or something just blew you out of the water? Some huge surprise. Yeah, actually, it was actually Bruce Dern, the actor, 
And Bruce, I don't know if, if you've heard my show, you've heard that great sound bite where Bruce is talking about the last hour on the pavement. And yes. That, that's how I know. That's we'll find out who the real Iron Man really is. Yeah. So I went through agents, and I finally got to Bruce Nerd. You know, and I think he was do, dealing with some dementia. Or, you know, so it, he just it, he just was not um, coherent. Okay. We were talking. But that was really of all the years. Never really had anybody who was negative. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things when we do the breakfast show, a lot of the athletes are obviously very nervous. And yeah. Ironman Week is the biggest week of their life. Yeah. But when they sit down and Poncho Man starts playing. <laughs> You can just see the, the you see the weight, yeah. yeah. You see the weight fall off of their shoulders, and now they're smiling, yeah. and now they're happy, and you know it's like oh, 15 minutes just to relax. Like, and again, I, I I love all the athletes, and I love getting their stories. So I don't think the athletes feel that I'm here to you know uh, let's dig into your past and find yeah. I don't care about it. All I care about is how they can motivate the person listening. What what is what does Lionel say that gets that guy who's you know, going? Oh gosh, my back is a little sore. Maybe I won't go ride. They go look at what this kid's overcome. I need to get my butt out there. Same with you know Mike Coots saying that the best thing ever happened to me was losing my leg. And people sitting at home going, complaining about their sore back, right? Mm. Or their sore arm, and I can't do anything yeah. because it is. I think it helps people reevaluate what's what really is an obstacle and what is an excuse. Mm -hmm. um, you've been writing, you're the editor. Um, how, or maybe it's not, but how has uh, electronic media changed the way that you uh, maybe conduct interviews or write pieces for your uh, publications? I, I, it's interesting. When I, I think there is still a love of long-form journalism. I think there's still, you know, in, as much as we have bite-sized pieces and little sound bites and things like that, people still dig reading, I do, sitting down with a magazine and, and reading a long, well-written article. Yeah. So I just think that you have to understand it's not something people do every day, that you need to sort of choose your spots. And, um, you know, I also, what you find out is your, face, your Facebook followers are different from your Instagram followers. In okay. Terms of, you know, your, the Challenge Athlete Foundation group stuff might resonate more with one group than the other. The Ironman stuff might resonate more with another. And I think the nice thing about now is back then, if I was doing my magazine once a month, so each month you put your product out. And now you can do it. 20 times a day. Yeah, it's, it's just you a flow, it's a stream. Yeah. And you can find out without spending, I mean, we're spending you know, $50,000 every time we're printing a magazine to find out that people aren't reading this article or they don't even know. Mm -hmm. So now you know what people are looking at. You know what they're responding to. That's great. I think it's a wonderful era to get that sense because then you can expand on that. When you find out that, gosh, people are on Instagram are really liking this, you can provide more of that. And, and try to make sure that you're doing what people like. And it's, it's more interactive than it's ever been, media-wise. I mean, it used to be one way. I mean, a, a monthly publication, you read it, and that's pretty much the end of the relationship between the reader. There was no relationship between the author and the... Um, uh, 
and, and, the, and you know, the author and the reader. It was just the reader either read it or didn't read it, and maybe they would write you a letter to <laughs> yeah. say yeah, they liked it. Yeah, that's true. But you know, that was very rare. You yeah. really did. You were sort of, that's why I hand out the magazine every month. I wanted to find out from people that weren't going to write to me. Mm. I wanted to find out what they liked and didn't like. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, I, this is a really a fun era. Because you can, you know, you, you, can, you can post videos. Like last night, we, we videoed that. Yeah. For anybody who missed the evening, we'll be posting that on Babbittville, and we'll be posting that on Fry Club of San Diego. And so people can get a sense of, you know, these amazing meetings that we have, some of the athletes between Ryan Hall and Ben Pafleski and Norman Stadler and Chrissy Wellington, the people we've had as guests, and Lionel will be joining us on April 2nd. Oh, really? Hey. Oh, yeah. Wow. We'll be doing a, a club meeting with Lionel, which I'm very excited about. That kind of stuff is, you know, you're able, the immediacy of that, you know, the, the interview last night, we'll get it up today, we yeah. can grab sound bites from it, we can transcribe it. Yeah, there's so many, so, so many ways you can form, flake, and deliver your content now. Content. Yeah. You take the same piece of content yeah. and, you know, you take the audio from the video and then you can transcribe the audio and you can, you can take the same piece of content and, and uh, present it multiple ways. And were you one of the early adapters? Uh, are you much of a tech guy? I am not that much of a tech guy, but we you know, we started the radio show in 1990, uh, and it was really terrestrial radio, and the idea was, again, I always felt it was a partnership, right? I felt if race directors were successful, races were successful, then the retailers would be successful. Because if I'm not training for a race, I'm not turning up my bike. Right? And then if the retailers were successful, then the manufacturers would go, man, there's a crap load of events in Southern California. There's a lot of business down there. We should invest more in that region because we want to compete against the other guys out down there. We want to, you know, that's a bigger cross-section of folks who are participating in running crap on cycling. Yeah. Let's take so to me, that was that, that all that kind of stuff was really, really important to get the, the everybody to understand how important the race director is. So that's always been my mission: is you grow those events, and everything everything stems from there. Um, talk to us about maybe um, some of the epic interviews that you've had. Uh, any favorite ones that stick out in your mind? You were talking. Well, besides the you know the Earl Lance ones from yeah. today, those were always fun. Um, and then uh, you know the, the ones with uh, a number of our challenged athletes, uh -huh. where, where they share their stories, and the stories are always amazing. Little, little, you know, watching some of these kids grow up. Rudy Garcia Tulsa's double above knee amputee, who we've been working with since he's seven. And now he's 27. <laughs> a fast 27-year-old. Who's been the four Paralympics. He's the first double above the amputee to finish an Ironman. He finished Ironman in Arizona in 1605. Just watching a young man grow up like that, because he was actually a sponsored athlete from the age of nine. Wow. He was, he was the breadwinner of the family. Really? He was uh, making probably, you know, between Power Bar and... CAF and the other company that who he is with, other companies he was sponsored by, mm -hmm. he was probably making you know, 40k a year when he was nine years old, ten wow. years old, and bought the home that the family lives in. His dad was a cook in a truck stop, his wow. five other kids, uh -huh. Rudy slept, he didn't have a bed, wow. he slept in the living room, and 
watching his story and watching him go on over and watching him change perception, being with him in Times Square and having somebody come up and say, I saw you on the Disney Channel. Uh, and, and, you know, young man, you are, you motivated me. And watching, he was the first kid we worked with. And now when we have our CAF triathlon, setting triathlon challenge, there'll be 70 kids there. Yeah. And that's because of Ricky. Yeah. And that, that type of stuff sticks out to me more than a specific, I mean, more than a specific interview with Rudy, it's just the impact he's had uh -huh. on my listeners. Yeah. And, and now, you know, it used to be when we needed a Robin Williams. Robin Williams was spectacular. Uh, Robin and Rudy developed this relationship. Oh, wow. They were partners uh -huh. on Team Braveheart. Rudy used to carry a little business card that said, a brave heart is a powerful weapon. Huh. And um, when he was seven, eight years old, and Robin would come down to our event at Travelon. So Rudy would do the 1.2 mile swim, Robin would do the 56 mile bike ride, uh -huh. and Scott Tinley would do the uh -huh. half marathon. And they were Team Braver. Yeah. And they were together for 11 years. Wow. And Robin loved Rudy. And he told me, he says, you know, Rudy doesn't care that I won an Academy Award. He just cares that I'm his video game pimp. <laughs> cool video game. Yeah. But Robin was such an amazing supporter of CAF. He actually, they just sold off his bicycles. He had 87 bikes yeah. that went off at auction and sold for $600,000. And it was the money was split between the Christopher Reeve Foundation uh -huh. and our foundation. Wow. So we received $300,000 from, wow. from that, which was amazing. Yeah. Bittersweet. Bittersweet. Yeah. yeah, Robin, my favorite Robin story was he what Robin loved more than anything was a live microphone, right? So on our event every year, we'd have, you know, how the news comes out for them to do their weather or whatever from the site of a big event. Well, yeah. you got Robin Williams there, you have a big event. So the, the anchor comes over and she's like, hey, Bob, do you think we could get you know, Robin to talk to us on camera? Is this a slide? Yes. Okay. Robin, Here it comes. Putting a live microphone in front of Robin Williams is yeah. like putting a piece of raw meat in front of a lion. <laughs> so Robin is standing there and she goes, so Mr. Williams, what are you going to feel like after this 56-mile bike ride? What am I going to feel like at the end of this 56-mile bike ride? Is this live? Yeah. I'm going to feel like there's a waterfall like Niagara Falls running down the crack of my head. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, oh, is this live? <laughs> the woman turns like a sheep. <laughs> and that's, that was Robin. He just loved it. He's high-fiving everybody as he walks yeah. away. And our people were so cool. Nobody was, like, bugging him for autographs. Yeah. It was, you know, they walk up to shake his hand and thank him for being there. Yeah. And one year we had Robin, Jim Carrey, and Will Ferrell at our event. Wow. At the same year. And this is the awards? San Diego, no, the San Diego Triathlon Challenge. Oh. This is, um, this is our CAF Triathlon. No, they all actually, Jim Carrey and Will ran an hour and a half, half marathon. Wow. Or no, hour 40. Far they really? ran with Wendy Ingram and Paul Huddle. Uh -huh. Yeah, they, they were great. And Robin did the bike ride, and the three of them together were pretty hilarious. Yeah. But Will was at my endurance awards. He had had videos online. Uh -huh. It's pretty funny to go to you know, better awards. Will Ferrell. Uh -huh. He actually stopped in the middle of his presentation to take a uh, take a gel. <laughs> oh, I've learned shaving parts of yes, my body. Yes, yes. I'd be shaved. <laughs> rashes are part of my body. I never got rashes. Uh -huh. Sometimes you know I need to take a gel in the middle of whatever I'm doing, and he stopped and takes a gel. <laughs> he was hilarious. Um, 
obviously you've had a chance to interview legends of the sport. Uh, mm-hmm. I know a lot of our listeners at Fitspeak would want to know. You've interviewed Mark Allen, Dave Scott, numerous times. Um, in the times that you've spent with them, whether it's on the phone or yeah. in person, um, what's their personalities like? How are they different? How are they the same? I mean, obviously out of California, obviously pioneers of the sport, obviously six-time Ironman winners. Right. Um, what but makes, differences? What makes them special for both of them? Well, Dave, early on with Dave, um, you know, his, one, his parents, Vern and Dot, were very special. And when I first started competitor, imagine... You know, my, uh, I've got a degree from University of Illinois, and I'm schlepping these free magazines around. My parents were like, this guy has gone down a bad path here. So we're in Chicago for the Chicago Triathlon, and I'm handing out magazines, and, and Dave's parents are there. And my dad is, you know, there as well. And my my parents, my dad meets uh, the Scots, and Dave's mom says to my dad, you should be very proud. Your son is going to do great things in this sport. And that sort of reaffirmed to him that, you know what, maybe this isn't, maybe the, there is something here. Maybe this isn't just some idiot wandering around handing out piece magazines. But maybe there's a business here. Yeah. That was really important. And then with Dave, the, the moment that sticks out the most to me with Dave, besides the fact that, you know, think about the Iron War race. Right. You saw his, he went 8.28 in 1986. He went 8.10 in 1989. He went 18 minutes faster than he'd ever gone before. He broke the run course record with his 2.41 by 8 or 9 minutes. And he lost. On the greatest day he ever had, Mark Allen beat him. Which was the way it should have been. Because throughout the 80s, those guys... You know, it was Mark winning everywhere else in the world and Dave Except, winning in Coney, yeah. right? And Dave, you know, Dave felt that was his turn. And so, in, you know, after Mark derailer broke in 82, uh, had a 13-minute lead and lost it in 84, had a 5-minute lead in 87 and lost again. 88 flatted twice when Dave didn't race. Dave pulled out the night And that's before. when Tinley won, right? No, 88 was Molina. Molina, right. Yep. So he pulled out the night before, and, and uh, Mark had two flats and didn't win. And, and to me, I know Mark was ripped up about it, but in my opinion, it wouldn't have been right for him to win without beating Dave. Yeah. And so when, you know, I reached out to the two of them in, in uh, March of 89. I said, guys, I want to do a photo shoot with the two of you. You know, showdown on the Kona Coast. Yeah. And Dave's like, no problem. Have Mark come here to Davis. We'll do the shoot. Uh-huh. And Mark's like, no problem. Have Dave come here to Boulder. We'll do the shoot. They weren't budget. Uh-huh. So Dave Epperson, our photographer, took a backdrop. And remember, this is 88. This is before a lot of Photoshop. composition. Yeah. Drove up to Davis, drove to Boulder, yeah. shot the two of them separately, and we composed it on the cover, showed on the corner coast. Back to back, black and white. It's pretty bitchy. Uh-huh. And then uh, what I learned later is Mark's there's a legend over on the Big Island that if you bring lava home it's bad bad juju you don't want to bring it you piss off Madame Bailey yeah. so and actually the, vo- the Volcano House Museum has uh, a case with lava rock and FedEx packages from people sending lava returning back it because their parents were killed in a car crash oh, wow. all this bad stuff had happened yeah. to them and they felt it was part of the good lava so I talked to the gal, and they said, and they, they send gin with as well, because that was Madame Pele's drink of choice. 
Yeah, so so, and then they also they always send a diagram of where they pick up the lava just, <laughs> just to bring it back there. Oh wow! And I said, so what do you do? Said, we kick the lava out the back door and we drink the gin. <laughs> so, anyways, before the '89 race, Mark's mom realized that on her shelf was a piece of lava rock that uh -huh. she had brought back from Tony years earlier. She brought it back that year. Didn't tell Mark uh -huh. until after race when he won. Wow! And he won for the first time. But to me, the fact that Dave went faster than he'd ever gone. Yeah. The fact that he did break his own course record by 18 minutes and lost was the way it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. Mark Allen should not have won the Ironman title without beating Dave Scott yeah. on the best day he ever had. Yeah. And then, so when Dave came back in 94, I, people don't remember it now, but he hadn't raced in five years and people were laughing. He rolled his bike in, he had the shifters down on the bars and the down tubes or everybody else had them at the end of the bars. And everybody's like, Dave Scott, this dinosaur, yeah. until he, he was 40. Yeah, right. He was 40. <laughs> so he, he surges by Ken Glaude and Greg Welch to go into the lead early in a bike, and it's like, okay, he's back. But my favorite thing with Dave was is this was the year he came back, 94. And we're at the King Cam Hotel, and he's signing autographs. And um, a uh, uh, guy comes up, and you know how, I don't know if you know, with, with the way Dave is, when Dave autographs something for you, he wants to know everything about you. Takes his time. Takes his time. Wants to know you. What's your name? Where are you from? Why are you here? What's your dog's name? You know, uh, tell me when you when you graduated high school. Everything. Yeah. And it's, it's great for the athlete, but the people who are working the booth, it's like sometimes the lines around the blocks, like, Dave, come on, my clothes are going out of style. He'll pick up the dish. Yeah. So anyways, this guy comes up, and he's got this scar. And he comes up, and so Dave starts his interrogation. So, what's your name? It's Jim. So, Jim, are you racing this year? No, I'm not racing, Dave. So, are you here? You got relative racing? No, I'm not relative racing. You got a friend racing? No. So, what brings you here? Says Dave, I was in a motorcycle accident a number of years ago. And somehow a friend of mine got to you, and you called me three times in the hospital to see how I was doing. I vowed that if you ever raced again, I would be here to watch you race. Wow. And I just got chills, because that's Dave Scott. When yeah. David Bailey, who was a motocross guy, was paralyzed, one of the first guys to visit him in the hospital was Dave Scott. And Dave Bailey talks about how this epitome of sunshine and you <laughs> walks into your room it's like this ray of sunshine coming in it's hard to feel bummed about what you're going yeah. through it's like oh my god Dave Scott's here to be with me wow very special the grip uh, watching the, being with Mark and seeing how tough he is now I mean if you watch video of him at the Nice Triathlon where he is basically out on his feet, yeah. his eyes are sunk in the back. Was that the year they had speed on the bike course? I'm not sure what they, all I know is Frank Shorter was doing the announcing uh -huh. and Mark was staggering. He still won. He still got there. And the other thing is Mark and I were working on a book uh, on the 87 Ironman. And it was called Mark Allen's Total Triathlon. And the whole idea was... Mark had a uh, $100,000 package with Kellogg's when he became the Ironman champion. You know, it was Ironman food, a new cereal, which, of course, Dave wasn't very excited about, that Mark Allen was right. endorsing a cereal for an event he'd never won. Yes. Right. 
So anyways, Dave was Dave, that relationship with them was prickly to begin with, uh-huh. but after that, that 87 year, they were sitting as close as we are, yeah. and then never made eye contact yeah. right, during the pro meeting. I mean, it was on. Yeah. They were, there was, there was one prize and two who won it. Mm-hmm. So that was really special. So Mark, in um, uh, 87, he ended up losing the race, ended up with internal bleeding, ended up in the hospital, and we were working on our book, right? which was supposed to be about him winning the race. Uh-huh. So he was on a beach in Hawaii or Maui, dictating into the little micro cassettes, yeah. right? And basically sharing everything. And I, from the race? From not just the race, but everything he went through. It's okay. just, you know, he was... After the race, he's you know, reading a paper yeah, that Dave like, Scott no, is like, you know, Dave, Mark needs nah. to learn to do his own race, quit yeah. sitting on my feet, uh, quit now, and go do your own <laughs> thing. And so he goes, listen, I'm, I'm bleeding internally. I mean, yeah. I suffered enough. Yeah. And not doubting if he'd ever come back. Yeah. That was it. Mm-hmm. I'm done with this thing. And just the, the willpower that he has. Now, was that before he got into working with Brant Segunda? Uh, he was... Had, was working with Brandt in 87, but 89 was really where, when he looked up in the sky and saw the the uh, the, uh, the the pastors or priests or you know that he saw those guys up in the clouds and you know he, he was saying to himself, no, no, those guys care that I'm doing the Ironman. They, they're happy with who they are. One guy's 103, one guy's another 102. And, all they care about is being happy. I just need to be happy. Well, in 2003, to show you how that rivalry is still there. Uh-huh. I mean, now it's the it's they, they get along fine. But 2003, I did a thing with Mark and Dave at LA Tri Club, mm-hmm. and we we're talking about we went through each year, and we're up to 89 now. And Mark's talking about looking up in the sky and seeing the muftis up in the clouds and. Dave just goes, cut the shit, Mark. You were just worried I was going to kick your ass again. <laughs> and it was, it Cuts was to it the quick. the room down. Yeah, <laughs> but that's, you know, the two of them are different people. Yeah. Mark is very spiritual. And, and Dave is a, is a, seriously, he's somebody who needs to train like three, four hours a day. Yeah. Just needs to, for his sanity. He yeah. needs to be working out all the time. We were traveling once in uh, San Paulo, no. It, uh, the triathlon down in Brazil, in Santos, and um, there's a little pool on the roof that was maybe 15 yards long, <laughs> maybe. And so Dave would be like, okay, Bob, we're going to swim, and we're going to swim 20 lengths, and I'm going to, uh, you're going to swim, you're going to swim 20, and I'm going to swim 30, and I'm going to try to beat you. And it's like everything was a race. Yeah. <laughs> of course, he won every time. Of course. Yeah, of course. That's just the way Dave is. But, yeah, just... Dave and Mark, we were very blessed between Mark and Dave and Molina and Tinley and Paula. You think about other sports like mountain biking, John Tomac and even Ned, they're wonderful people, Uh but they really aren't the spokespeople that Dave Scott and Mark Allen and Paula have turned out to be for our sport, you know. Just good people who love the sport, understand, you think about each one of them. Dave was a swim instructor. Mark was supposed to go to medical school. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Tinley was a working at the aquatic center here in San Diego and was hoping to become paramedic. Molina was flipping burgers up at Kmart in <laughs> Pittsburgh, California before he was brought down here. Team to Team J. David, yeah. J. David. So all those guys were so appreciative that they could become professional athletes 
Yeah, I mean, this was unscripted. I mean, totally you're good at baseball, sure. You're good at hockey. There's there's a path. It's been done before. Exactly. But these guys no coming from these, you know, get to the real world, and the real world's changed, and all of a sudden you're a, a professional athlete in a sport that's well, never's been around. Right. So, and they were the guinea pigs. So, mm. you know, when Melina was on the show, until with Melina together, until he was saying that, you know, Melina was going through a divorce, so he was... You know, and he knew the science of this stuff, and he knew the top swimmers were swimming 30,000 meters a week, and he knew the top cyclists were riding three to 500 miles a week, and he knew the top runners were running 80 to 100, but he decided he'd just do everything that those guys were doing, which put him at a level to become the Terminator, yeah. but wasn't something that could be sustained. No. You know, you can't do that. That's not happening now. You can't train now. 40 hours a week. Yeah. But they didn't know. Yeah. They needed to find out. And so those guys were our, they were like Tom Warren was for me. Right. They were the guys who showed the next generation mm. uh, what you needed to be doing. Yeah. So it's, it's been, you know, being able to be connected with those very special guys and all of us understanding from the very beginning, without it being said, that a high tide floats all boats. We need to grow the sport together and we'll all benefit. There'll be more sponsorship dollars for the athletes. There'll be more advertising dollars for the magazines. It wasn't us competing with each other, which sometimes happen when private equity and, mm. and big companies get involved. Yeah. It's about, you know, does Iron Man care about growing the sport or growing the Iron Man? Does Challenge Foundation, Challenge Family, family care about yep. growing the sport or just their events? Mm -hmm. that, that was a different mentality. Yeah. You know? Back then, John Duke ran triathlete, I ran competitor, Dan Enfield ran slow twitch, and while we competed for ad dollars, we also collaborated on growing the sport. Yeah, we those are, we have a vested interest in the sport being successful. We all win, mm -hmm. and that's something that was very important to, to the, the health of the sport. Uh, one final question. Yes. Um, let's look into the uh, crystal ball of Bob. Um, where do you see the sport of triathlon twenty years from now? Well, I think what's important is right now I call it the endurance entertainment marketplace because we've got running, triathlon, cycling, mountain biking, color run, Spartan race, Tough Mudder, Warrior Dash. There's more opportunity for the age group person, for the participant than ever before. Um, at the same time, because there's and we have a bigger cross section of people participating, putting numbers on there before, triathlon is getting less of that. And it's been soft. And there's a number of reasons. One, I'm a firm believer that the swim scares the crap out of people. That you've got current kelp, cold water, it's dark out there, there's people playing bongos on your head, <laughs> there's anything and everything that can go wrong happens in the swim. Yeah. Right? It's scary putting a wetsuit on for the first time, all that. Um, also, if I sign up for a Spartan race, I can decide I'm going to go off at noon. They've got, they're at a ski resort, right? Things blocked off all day. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to a triathlon, I get up at 4 yep. to get to the site by 5.30, to get booted out of transition at 6.30, for a race that starts at 7, and my wave goes off at 8. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of time. Yeah. It's a lot of schlepping. That's all. You know, I know, what do I need for Spartan racing, Tough Mudder, Color Run? A pair of shoes and a pair of shorts. Yeah, you're off. I don't need a $5,000 bike. I yeah. don't need anything. So one of my, do me, one of my big pushes and it's something you guys certainly can do up in Canada, is these pool triathlons. And we have a number of them here with start with a 5K run, then a 12-mile or 10-mile bike, then a 150-yard swim in a pool. So finish it off in the pool. Finish it off in the pool. Huh. And you take a 50-meter pool, and you put three lane lines. And so at the end of the ride, you jump in, and you swim to the end. You duck into the lane yep. line, swim back. So 
it spreads out. The run and the bike spreads everybody out. Right. And you have so many people who have never swam before mm. who are scared. So when I knew, we have a event, Tinsel Triathlon, which is out in Hemet, California, which is, the other thing is, when you do triathlons near a lake or an ocean, You need a lake with water. <laughs> and you need, you need to be near, usually those places are pretty populated. Yeah. Right? And it's hard to block up those roads. It's expensive. Well, if you're out in the middle of East County, San Diego, yeah. you can get the roads fairly cheaply. So one of the things uh, years ago, the Tinsel Triathlon, which gets, has had between 900 and 1,200 participants out in Hemet, California. Um, a number of years ago, I'm there, and the guy next to me has his, you know, his, his board shorts on, his bike with the high bar, the koozie on, and he's doing his first year triathlon. Mm-hmm. And he's done a three-mile run and a 12-mile bike, and he's done the 150-yard swim, and he's standing there when the, uh, the announcer goes, hey, everybody, the Ironman Triathlon is going to be on TV later today. You should tune in and watch. And this guy's wife says to him, honey, what's the Ironman? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't hesitate. He goes, same thing I just did a little longer. <laughs> right? Yeah. In his mind, yeah. if Peter Reed walked up to him right then, yeah. he'd be like, dude, we're both triathletes. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what matters. People want to be triathletes because it's sexy. Mm-hmm. So if you can start people out with something where you finish the bike and you jump, you're warmed up, you jump into a warm pool yeah. with lane lines, lifeguards, and walls, how great is that? Yeah. Plus, from a race director perspective, one, it's cheaper it's the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You're finishing by stepping out of the pool over a timing mat. Yeah. You don't need scaffolding. It's, mm. it's right there. So you can do these anywhere. Yeah. That, to me, is we have to make a concerted effort the same way I was handing out 3,000 magazines a month at the events to not only promote my my magazine, yeah. but also to get people to understand that there's other events out there. Besides a running event, there's a triathlon, there's cycling. We have to make a conscious effort, all of us, to grow our industry. We need more participants and more participants loving our sport so that they're sharing that yeah. same love with the next generation. Yeah. I think to a certain degree, because we've become a big business, people feel we don't need to do the hard yards anymore. Yeah. We do. Yeah. We have to a- do and that. And I think those pool triathlons, so we have Hemet, yeah. which is tinsel. This next weekend, we'll have Laguna Niguel, which is um, uh, in Laguna Niguel, again, pool triathlon. The Rose Bowl, have one there, uh, out in Loma Linda, and out at the Los Alamitos, there's probably seven or eight of them. Uh-huh. And all of them get anywhere from 700 to 1,000. These are big races. They're big races, yeah. and they're easy to put on yeah. for race directors, and they're bringing brand new people into the sport. Uh-huh. That, to me, is what it's all about. Now, what's important is, after they finish that race, is having the wetsuit manufacturers there to get people to try on a wetsuit, swim in a pool in a wetsuit. Uh, yes, uh, you know, gateway. Gate. Yes. It's our gateway. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that, to me... For a triathlon to continue to be relevant is to understand that we need to grow in the kids' program. The kids are do those races, right? Uh, this, this gal who puts on, um, she raises, Sheree Gruenfeld has a thing called Exceeding Expectations, and she uses triathlon as a way to get disadvantaged kids feeling good about themselves. And next thing you know, they're going to college, and they're graduating college, they're a phenomenal program. So, Normally, if she's going to a triathlon that's in a bay or something, she could potentially bring three of her kids. Okay. Because she's scared. Mm-hmm. She had 60 of her kids. Wow. At the Tinsel Triathlon. Yeah. So, cool. Mm-hmm. Pretty safe. Yeah. Anybody can get through it. 
So that's the key, is now you have a place for kids to race. And so it's not just these, you know, the age group swimming kids. Like those guys are going to find our sport. They have. It's the kids who are not drought proof yet, the kids who need to learn to swim and find out that swim, bike, run is pretty fun. And you don't need a $10,000 bike. You can yeah. use your BMX bike. Yeah. You can use anything. So that to me is to grow the sport and keep it vibrant, we got to keep promoting every single day and get new people in. And get away from this purest element. I had never thought about having the swim last. So, you know, Why not? safe, it's doable. Safe, it's doable. Yeah. And it's for a race director, especially, you know, you guys could be doing those races rather than waiting for the ocean, the lake to thaw and yeah. get the ice off of there, <laughs> ice fishing. Why not? You could do this stuff in, you know, in February and March. Yeah. Right? All you need is a pool. Yeah. Just, just you know, you have, all you need is, think about it, you could do, do a two-mile run, one-mile road out and back. Yeah. And then, like for the Rose Bowl triathlon, the loop that they're on is a three-mile loop that we do three times. Yeah. So it's a nine-mile bike run. So there's, they're using the same loop for the run and the bike. So he's blocking off three miles of road around the Rose Bowl and then running over to the Rose Bowl pool. Mm-hmm. So, I think you've just... Uh created some good information for our race directors who are probably listening to this um chance for an opportunity for some races january february march yeah gets new people and so lifetime fitness is a series of health clubs in the states they have a program called commit to try they do it on one day in 77 of their clubs they sell it out 100 people per club and what those people do is they start with a 10 mile 10 10 minute swim in a pool Mm -hmm. right then a 30 minute ride on a stationary bike then a 20 minute run on a treadmill on a treadmill okay they charge $25 and now in one day we've got 7,700 brand new trials yeah there's there's the ticket so reaching out to the health clubs and saying let us put on uh, indoor triathlon getting new people in and I'm trying it out and then they're they're, they're setting up waves throughout the day yeah so it's uh, again I think we have to be creative and understand that there's limitations to blocking off roads mm. and when you're when you're doing your swim in the bay or in the ocean what you're paying on lifeguards mm-hmm. is you know it's a lot of times very expensive yeah and you can't for you know if you have to put only have a certain number of people in the water at a time for safety which is wonderful but yeah now you've got this pool trap on it's uh when i said we i actually brought my videographer out to shoot the one at tinsel trap on heaven so the people can actually see it. Because yeah. race directors get confused when mm. I talk about serpentine across the pool. Oh. But when you see it, yeah. you get it that, okay, nobody's getting run over in the pool. Uh-huh. It's a big old badge in a 50-meter pool yeah. that you're dividing up with two lane lines. So yeah. there's three lanes. Mm. It's pretty simple. Huh. Um, one final question. I've got this. Uh, so I found this picture. I hope I can find it here. We might get some microphone noise. Yeah. Take a second, but here it is. So take a look at that guy. Kind of a takeoff from what we saw last night. That's actually the '79 Iron Man. So that is you. No, that's not. That's, is that Cowman? Gordon Haller. Gordon, Gordon Haller, '78 champion. This is um, Frank Day from Power Cranks. Yeah, from Power Cranks. Lynn Lamare, the first woman to do the uh, Iron Man, and that's Ian Emerson, who um, actually I interviewed this year on the show. His mom. In the 78 race, met him, he grew up in the islands, but his mom met him with oysters for him to eat during the marathon. <laughs> <laughs> so, And he puts on the Maui Channel. Sweat. You were part of this. Well, I was in the following year. This is 79. 79. Year, yeah. So you were the next year, 1980. 1980. Yep. So 
what would the 1980 Bob Babbitt say to the 2017 Bob Babbitt after all these years of being a competitor, a participant, an organizer? Um, what's been in it for you? Oh gosh, it's it's my it's my life. I, mean, I think the 1980 guy would go, "You were smart to stay the course, right?" <laughs> there was times where. You know, there was too many races, and numbers were dwindling, and rather than having 900 people in one triathlon, you'd have 300 in three triathlons in Southern California, and, you know, you had to wait for the ebb and flow of, of you know, of events to go away, and you, the key for me is when I look back and where I am now is everything happened from passion, right? When we started the Challenge Athlete Foundation, it was to help Jim McLaren. We didn't know that eventually we were going to you know, help 13,000 people out and send grants all over the world and get triathlon into the Paralympics. Uh -huh. Everything just happened sort of organically. And my, my message is always when you work from passion, when you work from your heart, usually dollars will follow. Uh -huh. But when you, when you are always chasing dollars, a lot of times that doesn't work. I remember at one point in particular during uh, at Competitor, the running business was sort of falling off and walking had become very popular. Like mall walking, mm. and the question was asked at, the, at, the, at our meetings: Should we be focusing some of these walkers, and just not race walking, but walkers, just yeah. people who are going out walking mm. on, on the weekends at the malls? And I was like, that's not who we are. Yeah, you know, we're running, triathlon, cycling, mountain biking. It's endurance. You got to stay the course. You got to understand there is going to be ebb and flow. But if you believe in what you're doing and you have passion, and you don't just sit on the sideline bitching about it, yeah. and you get out there and, you know, and that's one of the reasons you, that, that club that you saw last night, mm -hmm. that doesn't just happen. No. Right. That's, you know, hey, Dean, Dean, I, I find out that Dean's coming to do a, a presentation in, in La Jolla for, on Wednesday night. Yeah. I'm like, hey, Dean, can I convince you to stay yeah. an extra day? Yeah. Right? Then reaching out to Warwick's and saying, guys, can you sell books? At, a, at our meeting, mm -hmm. and then you know, Gino will probably have a bigger crowd than normal. Can you handle over 200 folks here yes. tonight? And so it's it's everybody buying in and understanding the bigger picture that you know we want people to leave last night being enthused yes. about being involved with the sport mm -hmm. and feeling just like that 1985 Batman at yeah. the end of the Ironman, mm -hmm. feeling like. I'm in the right place. This is the right sport. These are the right people. These are good people who, you know, who are have jobs and are high, you know, they're high end producers in their work and their family and triathlon and cycling and swimming and running enhances their quality of life. That, that to me is what it's all about. That, like I mentioned earlier, our sport is the fountain of youth. And as I used to tell people who are you know 60, 70, 80 years old. When you go to these events, we're not going to events, we're going to parties. Yeah. We go to parties every weekend. <laughs> and when you're 60 years old and you're hanging out with 30-year-olds, yeah. that keeps you young. Yeah. And that's what our sports do is they keep you young. So for all your listeners out yes. there, you want to stay young, <laughs> keep racing, keep training. Thank you so much, Bob. A pleasure. Anytime. I guess we'll see you uh, in Penticton.